So you kind of never know when Romans 8 is going to show up in your life. Uh, last Sunday, while you were here, during first service, I was driving in my rental car uh, on the way to the airport in Seattle. Let me set the scene for a moment. I went on this glorious, beautiful picture postcard weekend in Seattle. Uh, Mount Rainier is off to my right. The sun is bursting through, so it's completely clear. Fresh dusting of snow happening right there. Um, there are clear roads on the way to the airport. I was listening to the music that I wanted to listen to at the volume that I wanted to listen to. Now, this is a huge deal for me because most of the time I travel around with about six DJs in training, all <laughs> super opinionated on what we're listening to and how loud we're listening to it and on and on it goes. So it was, it was, a, it was a really good morning. As I'm driving along, three bikers pass me, and on the back of these bikers' uh, you know, jackets was a cross... And then written down the vertical was the word chosen. And I'm driving along on this glorious morning, just kind of thinking of you guys, praying for Ben, praying for the team, thinking of you all. And the word chosen goes by. Three guys, three biker dudes uh, cruise by with the words chosen. And I just thought, God, you're, you're too good for me. You know, you're, you're too good to me to just think about. This adoption that we have as sons, this fact that we're chosen, it changes everything. And I was already having a good morning, but then to have you know, Romans 8 kind of ride by on motorcycles was an awesome thing. You know, speaking of saying goodbyes, Michael Dolan's wedding was this last weekend, and uh, I kind of got to go along with Kelly Barrow, she was there as well, and Josh. Uh, but we got to kind of go and represent Neighborhood Bible Church to, to Michael um, and, uh, and to his family. And uh, we were there with two of his college buddies from Syracuse. We all landed at the same time, so we grabbed lunch. He was at work, and we were touring World Vision, which is where he works. He's a copywriter for them. And we're kind of touring around there. So one of his college buddies says this. He goes, so wait a minute. Just how did you end up at, you know, at, at World Vision again? And Michael turns around, and he goes, it's his fault. And he points to me. And he said this. He said, you know, I heard about it in a sermon one time, and, um, and God began to move and life happened, and sort of the rest is history, and here I am. So here's my, here's my caution. What you may hear in this sermon may be life-altering. It may, it may uproot you from where you currently are, and it may send you on something that, that God has for you. Uh, turning your Bibles to Romans 8, uh, we're going to wrap up this just incredible chapter this morning with this idea firmly planted in our brains that God is for us. I want you to imagine you're having a tug of war for a moment, and you only have one person on your team, and it's God. It's you and God versus, now fill in the blank and answer me this question. What could possibly beat you if the God of the Bible, as he's revealed himself, is really who God is, not a made-up thing of our imagination, but the God of the Bible is on your team what could possibly be on the other end of that rope that would cause you to lose? Here's the answer. Nothing. Pencils down, we all get an A, right? Test over. That's, that's pretty simple. Now let me change the scenario just a little bit and up the stakes. What if, instead of tug of war, there's a wall that you feel like you're pushing up against, and that wall is closing in on you, and not just from one side, but from all four sides, you aren't able to really even see what is pushing against those walls coming at you. 
And it's not just a game at stake. It feels like your very life is at stake. Certainly your sanity is at stake as you feel like time is winding down and the walls are closing in. And it's you and God. The answer is exactly the same, right? Those walls aren't going to ultimately touch you. They are not going to crush you. The first scenario is sort of like the Sunday school pop quiz, sitting in school answer. It's the right answer. The second one is a little bit more how we experience life. We experience life not as just sort of a, a binary you know, tug of war and we see the enemy and we know God's with us and we win. It feels a little different where we can't see the forces. We don't even know what we're pushing against or how long it's going to last uh, or, or what side to be thinking about. Every person you ever meet is longing for some same similar basic things. They're also wrestling on some degree and in varying times in their life, they are wrestling with some very similar kinds of questions. It shows up in our graffiti that we see. Here's a question. Is there any outside help or is life up to me? People are asking that question, aren't they? You're asking that question. (laughs) Romans 8, by the way, speaks to all of these. Our passage today, God is for us. Catch this. And he graciously gives us all things. Here's another question that can come up in our minds. Who or what is in control of things? Or is there anyone in control? Romans 8 tells us that all creation, including people, are groaning and longing and looking forward to a redemption. Here's Here's another question that might come up. Do I have any guarantee that this life has ultimate meaning? That all the loose ends of things will sort of tie up by the finale? Now, not to open old wounds, but those of you who watched Lost, the TV series, right? You're you're thinking about this idea that in the midst of some given episode, your brain is saying, I sure hope there's a satisfying finale that's going to tie up all these loose ends. And we live our lives that way. We live it episode by episode. And the question is, is there meaning and purpose to this? Is this going to all tie up in some great and glorious picture or not? And so we ask those kinds of questions. Romans 8 tells us this, that everything works together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So even though people have some similar questions and similar pursuits in this life, they attack it with varying degrees of intensity. And I think our life circumstances brings about different times where we feel like we have more time to talk about these big questions of life and other times where they take a back seat and we're just kind of in status quo mode. I believe that half-hearted religiosity isn't any more satisfying than a person who is sitting at a bar ordering their favorite adult beverage to sort of drown out deeper, bigger questions like these. I think people who are sort of half-hearted religious people and those who are sort of trying to escape in some way, whether it be entertainment or some sort of substance, are are much more on the same page uh, than, than one might think. God has given us reason and logic, and reason and logic dictate that we build on truths and we keep moving forward on life based on what is true and not just bury our head in the sand about truths that tend to challenge us. So for this reason, let me say this. I think I have more in common sometimes 
And I find conversation to be more engaging when I am talking with an ardent atheist, someone who truly believes there is no God and is pursuing that lifestyle and is living it out and is willing to speak about their faith system that establishes that. I find conversations with people like that more honest and more engaging than a ton of people who sort of sprinkle in religious things, especially once they find out I'm a pastor and they sort of do these things and it's, and it's in bizarro land as I try to talk with them about deeper matters. Now, I disagree sharply with an atheist. You might imagine that. Um, But I really do appreciate them taking their worldview seriously and being willing to engage in dialogue and debate. Not long ago, I was sitting in an airport and I was reading uh, this article from The Guardian. And it says this, Atheists have seemed rather keen in recent years to stress their jolly side. It's a British author, by the way. There's the Happy Human logo, you may have seen that, used by International Humanists and Ethical Union. Then there were the Atheist Bus Projects, telling uh, posters, telling us that we should stop worrying and enjoy life. Given how atheist stereotype has been one of a dark, brooding existentialist, this is understandable. But frankly, I think we've massively overcompensated, and in doing so, we've blurred an, an important distinction. Author goes on to say this, Atheists should point out that life without God can be meaningful, moral, and happy. And it can just as easily be meaningless, nihilistic, and miserable. Atheists have to live with the knowledge that there is no salvation, no redemption, no second chances. Lives can go terribly wrong in ways that can never be put right. I don't know if you have close family members or friends or neighbors or people that you actually are in relationship that are atheists. But atheists seem to have no huge motivation to hide their disdain for Christians. At least the ones I've come across. And what's interesting is I've tried to do, I've tried to do unto them what I would want done to me, and that is this. I like to establish that not all Christians are the same. So when they just want to lump Christians into one group, I try to do this. I don't want to just lump every atheist into one group and sort of pick and choose the caricature that, that I most deride and I kind of put that on someone. But if you're ever in real conversation with someone and you begin to dialogue, here's some of the things that have been thrown at me. There's sort of this idea that Christians want hope and so they believe in God. But here's the truth of the matter. I have hope because there is a God to believe in. There is a God who is there and is trustworthy. The implication of the first is that it's a made-up fairy tale, but this is utter nonsense because a God of my own invention that I just want to believe in because I want to feel better about my current life would never contradict me. Does that make sense? And yet God calls me into all kinds of places that are rough and are unknown and are scary to me. And frankly, aren't that comfortable? Because God is there and really calling. As Paul has already shown from earlier parts in Romans, um, an atheist hasn't gone far enough in their pursuit of the truth. Uh, There's a certain convenient ignoring of whole swaths of truth just 
from creation. Remember this from Romans 1? That there ought to be enough that we see in the made-known world that drives us to say, let's look beyond creation to an intelligent, purposeful creator. And yet the pattern that we see played out in 2017 has been laid out in Romans 1, and that is this, that darkened minds become even darker. And what happens is, if you start with a premise, there is no possibility of God, then you begin to make up more and more foolish-sounding, to my ears, arguments as to explaining what's going on in the world that we see and all the myriad of things that go on in what we don't see. How a humanist can believe in the ongoing lie that man is basically good is a staggering thought because all of the evidence, all of the time, is to the contrary. What happens for a humanist, it says man is basically good and if something goes horribly wrong... Think England this week, but go back the week before, and the week before, and the week before. It's everywhere that it's someone's fault, that it's some strange anomaly that someone would do something so wicked and evil. But if you start with the premise that man is basically good, then you have just this mountain of evidence that doesn't add up. So we long for similar basic intrinsic designed things. Here is the immense joy of the true believer. Are you ready for it? It's this, that our deepest longing and the bedrock truth, the truth that holds all other truth underneath it, is not a fork in the road. It's not a choice to be made. It is found in the same place. And more accurately, we would say as Christians, it's found in the same person that is in Jesus Christ. So as we look at Romans 8 this morning, I want you to look for this. Paul is drawing out some implications of what he's written so far. Look at verse 31. It says this. What shall we say to these things? And here is the basic outline of the part we're going to look at. That God is for us. And more than God is for us, God loves us. And when you take these two ideas and you marry them together, here's what you get. You get a massive celebration of the security of the believer. If God was just for us, we could kind of think of him as a benevolent benefactor, right? Someone who's good-natured, and they're our cheerleader, and they're kind of for us. That's one thing. But you can be still cool to someone that you're kind to and helping along. It's not just that God is for us. It's that God loves us, that he's brought us in intimately, that he refers to us as intimate sons and daughters, or he refers to himself as the loving, doting father. Now, here's one of the oddities of being a pastor, and I would imagine this is true just as a Christian as well, but it seems to come up more as a pastor, and that is this. I'm in this place of feeling pressure to defend God. Quite a bit of times. So I might come up on a Sunday morning like this and make this statement unequivocally. God is for us. And a Christian might come to us or a watching world might come and say, yeah, if God is for us, then why X, Y, Z? And you fill in the blank. Why this atrocity? What is God thinking? And it's almost like I'm the complaints department to kind of speak for management of what's going on with God. Now, I am to be ready, like all Christians, to be able to defend the faith. 
I hope that you're at the ready. I'll tell you how you get at the ready. You open your mouth for Jesus Christ's name. When you open your mouth for Jesus Christ's name, people attack that idea, and then you go, crud, I probably should have been more ready for this. And so then you go and you figure it out and you study, you go, why do I believe that? Your faith is strengthened. So you're ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you about the faith. But here's what it is with God. God doesn't need me to defend him, ever. I am called to be a witness. I'm called to bear witness by my mouth and by my lifestyle of what it is like to place my total confidence in a good, good father. So when I feel the pressure to defend God and speak for him and figure out what he's doing, I can say with utter confidence this statement. I have no idea what God is doing a lot of times. And that's a great thing. God's ways are much higher than my ways. So to your question, what is God doing with this? I don't know. I do know, though, as a faithful disciple, I'm called to run to him and bring my complaints to him. You know, there's sort of some Christian shorthand that we speak to each other. And as a believer who's in the word, you could say these things and they really are meaningful. But to an outsider who you might say it to or to someone who might overhear it, it can actually do more damage than good. It can come off as simplistic, wishful thinking if there's not sort of context around it. Romans 8 is the mother load of these kinds of phrases. Here are a few of them. Hey, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hey, we've received the spirit of adoption. We cry, Abba, Father. Hey, this stuff you're going through, it's not even worth comparing to the stuff that's coming. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. God is working all things together for good. Hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us? We are more than conquerors. Now, here's what's true. Hear me. All of this that you see on your screen, all of this in Romans 8, is the way of the Spirit. It's not just possible. This is the expected consequence of placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, this is what we see in our lives. Why am I joyful right now? God, it's the weirdest thing because everything around me screams I should not be happy. I should not be joyful. But you've given me such a deep overflow of joy right now. I can't muster this if I tried. And here it is, a fruit of walking in step with your spirit. So while all of these things absolutely are true and possible, with no context, if you just kind of throw these out, hoping if you say them enough, they'll become true, this is a coin in a fountain. This is a magic potion just saying, and I hope I say this enough, I feel really guilty, let me just quote, no condemnation several times and hope that something works. Here's why, when Paul is writing in Romans 8, if you haven't heard, understood, and applied Romans 1 through 7, you're taking Romans 8 out of context. And when you lift a portion of Scripture that you like out of context and you develop a theology and a worldview around it, you know what that's called? It's called a cult. There's no life in it. There's no power in it. It's a magic potion. So Romans 8, rightly understood, only in light of Romans 1 through 7. So the spirit of adoption, the intimacy with the Father, the power to overcome, trust that God really is working everything for ultimate good. These only happen 
if there is a preceding work of the Holy Spirit. And you know what the preceding work of the Holy Spirit is before all this assurance and all this comfort takes place? It's found in John 16, 7. It's spirit-powered conviction and spirit-powered conversion. Look at Romans, or look at John chapter 16. Jesus talking, he says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, speaking about the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Watch this. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit frees us, first by bringing us to ruin. More accurately said, by revealing our ruin. So that work of conviction must be before this work of assurance and the power that we have in our life. The Spirit also redeems. He grants us repentance that leads to life. Titus 3 calls this the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. One of the amazing treasures of Romans 8 is this. It doesn't just speak about all the amazing gifts we have in God. It doesn't just talk about the power that we can tap into that is ours in Jesus Christ. It doesn't just talk us about the fact that we're no longer condemned. It dives into all the yucky stuff of life. It leads us down into the absolute worst that this life and all the spiritual dark forces can throw at us doesn't gloss over it. It meets it head on. So maybe you see the title and you question that. God, the great I am, is for me? Is that really true? Is God for us? Is God for me specifically? I would say this. It depends on Romans 1 to 7. It depends on your response to Romans 1 to 7. You can't force his favor on you, and he won't force his love on you. So I'd ask these questions from the first seven chapters. Are you in Christ? Do you belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead? That was Easter. If yes, then you are his forever, and you can be absolutely, utterly assured that it's not some whimsical, fairy tale, hopeful thinking kind of a thing. God is for you. And those four words change your life. Amen? I mean, it changes the horizon and the formula on everything that you're looking at. So let's take, I'm going to kind of break this down into, into two things. Who could be against this? So what could possibly threaten your no condemnation status? Think about this. Whoever or whatever that would be would have to be greater than God. Do you see the logic of that? So if God's justified, whoever's saying no would have to be greater than God. Look at verse 31. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. John MacArthur in his commentary gives sort of some possibilities of who might be against us. Let me walk you through a couple of these. Could it be others? 
Could a court of law rob you of God's grace? Could some ecclesiastical body of people grant you God's grace or somehow remove God's grace from you? If you remember from, uh, from Galatians, remember the Judaizers? The Judaizers were there kind of mixing it up with the new Christians. And Paul slams their ideology that says this, if you accept circumcision as somehow granting you acceptance to God's favor, then the grace of God is nothing to you. You walk away from that. It's an either-or trade. There's no mortal sin we could commit. There's no body that can say, you are in, you are out. Others can't do it. So here's the conclusion. Who will bring a charge against you? Here's the answer. Lots, actually. Tons of people. But none of it will stick. None of it's real because they don't have the authority or the jurisdiction. How about yourself? Here's my question for you. Are you greater than God? I mean, the amount of pride, genuinely, at the core of it, the amount of pride it would take to think that you could somehow thwart what God has said on a matter. Now, we all do this all the time. It's called sin, right? But the idea would be we would have to be greater than God if somehow we could bring a charge against ourselves. We're not even fit to declare what is moral or not moral. And we're certainly not qualified to judge. The lie the enemy throws at us is this. You know, maybe you could screw this whole thing up if you just keep heading down that path. The conclusion that we have is this. I didn't perform my way into God's family. I certainly can't perform my way out of God's family. So others don't threaten this. Your own self doesn't threaten this. Hypothetically, it could be the father. He's the one who gave it to you. Maybe he could take it back. Here's the logic that Paul throws at us. It is, a, it is an argument from lesser to greater. Ready? He who did not spare his own son. How will he now not give you everything that you need? When, when did Christ die for you, Christian? While you were an enemy of God. Now think about this for a second. Now that you're a son... Will God treat his children worse than his enemy? Good night, if he's going to be gracious and merciful and provide for the enemy, provide the killing of his son, how will he now not graciously give us all things? No, you're not in threat of God taking back. The proof of the great lengths that God's love goes to is seen and settled on the cross. Here's one more possibility. Maybe it's Christ Jesus himself. What does Paul say to this? Absolutely not. He not only died but was raised. He wasn't only exalted to the right hand, but catch this, right now he's interceding on your behalf. Here's the great conclusion we have on this. You and I do not represent ourselves in God's court. We have a spokesperson for us interceding on our behalf. So because God is for us and no one and no thing is greater than God, then none are truly against us. So your question is left with this. I get all that, but what of all the rotten stuff that still goes on? If you read your Bible for a few minutes, you realize this. Who is God for? Well, God's for his people. 
not just biblical history, but more recent history, shows the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, are just littered with the fists of the wicked, pounding, pounding, pounding. And God is for them. God was for Jesus Christ, right? And yet, how many were against him? In his day, most, very few stood up. Even the closest ones ended up denying in the end. How many stand up for Jesus now? What happened ultimately to Jesus in his life here on earth? He was put to the cross. So God is for who can be against. Here's what this means. It means that none can ultimately prevail. So once again, are there people against you? Absolutely, but none will prevail. Are there people that are going to bring charges? Absolutely, but nothing is going to stick. If you were to study the people that this letter is directed to, here's what you would know. Here's what you would discover. That sooner than probably the author or the recipients could even predict, they would need the comfort of the words of the truth of this letter. This is from MacArthur's commentary. He says this, It would not be many years before they would face fierce persecution from a pagan government and people that now tolerated them with indifference. It would not be long before the blood of those to whom this this epistle is addressed would soak the sands of Roman amphitheaters. Some would be mauled by wild beasts. Some would be slain by ruthless gladiators. And others would be used as human torches to light Nero's garden parties. Horrible, wicked, despicable stuff awaits the Roman Christians to whom this letter is written. It's well documented that this life, for those that God is for, is no picnic. God being for, God working for good, must be seen through sort of the bigger story being told, not just in light of the current episode. Take one piece of the puzzle and try to figure it all out, you won't get it. It won't make any sense. Pull back and see the big picture. Let's look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now he goes on to list a whole bunch of what's. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's look at all these things. Some of you can name your current storms. Your current storms show up in prayer requests around your community group and uh, and things that you bring to God. The word tribulation here sort of carries the idea of being under pressure or being squeezed. How dangerous is it to be under pressure or squeezed? I just got my wife a a pressure cooker for Mother's Day. And as one mother uh, in this church cautioned me, you got to be careful giving an appliance on Mother's Day. It could send the wrong message. It was a hit. It was a huge hit. Now, there are all kinds of safety precautions cooking with a pressure cooker. Why? Because it can get really dangerous. How about with people? I mean, if it's true that your food could be dangerous cooking, how dangerous are people? We should all wear a warning sign that says, you know, contents under pressure may explode at any time. (laughs) And it's it's fraught with danger, isn't it? Just to be in in relationship in this world. This tribulation that we have. 
How about the word distress? This word is a Greek word of, made up of two other Greek words called narrow and space, sort of taking narrow space and putting it together. Think about being sort of helplessly hemmed in by temptation. This world that we live in, wherever we go, there's just temptation coming at us. There are messages coming at us that are lies. Our jobs, endless advertising, living situations place you in things that can have you feeling claustrophobic. The narrow winding road that God leads us on causes stress, but we celebrate that it won't threaten the love that we have in Christ. Next word is persecution. It's not just your car getting a flat tire. It is suffering that is related for wearing the name of Christ. Listen to sort of the double blessing that Jesus spoke about when he preached on this in the Beatitudes. He says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's those who would bring a charge. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is never pleasant in the moment, is it? But it has a lasting effect on your life. Corey Ten Boom is a well documented person who lived through the Holocaust and went on later in life to forgive and bless her tormentors. We've looked at Louis Zamperini, who was a prisoner of war in, in Japan, and same thing. He found Jesus Christ and he went back and, and he began to speak in ways and categories that, he, that his captors and guards had no context for. Utter forgiveness of their tormentors. And people look at that and go, how on earth can you do that? And you just point them to the Bible. You say, my master and savior did it from the cross. How can, how can I not do the same thing? How can I not live the same way that my, my savior did? How about famine? Famine occurs when there's ongoing targeted persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, think about this today, friends, that many around the world are lacking the basics for one simple reason, because they will not deny the precious name of Jesus Christ. In any economy, you think selling your soul for a bowl of soup is a bad trade, and yet people do that all the time. There are many around the world today that lack the basic necessities because of the fact that they're holding on to Jesus. How about nakedness and danger? Nakedness here isn't necessarily nudity, but it's exposure. It's being subject to all kinds of things. That umbrella that is held over people by governments is lifted if you name the name of Christ. Basic protections that used to be there, governments and people that used to sort of be indifferent to Christians, changes like it did in Rome. And all of a sudden, you're left exposed and in danger. Finally, he goes on to the word sword. It's not so well documented because we only hear the most extreme cases. But just this week in Egypt, I think it was 38 more that were killed for being Christians in a Christian church. Beheadings, physical violence leading to death is the plight of Christians in any age. I would challenge you on this Memorial Day weekend with this thought. I think it is good, appropriate, and right to talk to your kids to, as a family, remember many in this room have family members, close loved ones that have given their lives in service for this country. 
It is a good and appropriate thing to stop, pause, remember, and be thankful for their sacrifice. I would add to it this. As a Christian, maybe we should have a separate holiday that remembers the martyrs of the faith. And you don't have to go back centuries, friends. There are people, brothers and sisters, all around the world today that could use your prayers because they're on the verge of this. There are those who have given their life for the name of their sweet Savior. What's powerful about this list, look at that list. Paul was not speaking hypothetically. He was speaking biographically. If you were to go and read just from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you were to go to read Hebrews 11, you would see some of the real stuff that goes on when Jesus exchanges the jersey we wear and we put his jersey on us. And for being on that team, persecution comes. We did a series here maybe a year ago about turbulence. And the turbulence series reminded us, hey, this is only turbulence. The stuff we're going through right now, catch this, is not eternal life threatening. It's just not. And we have to see the bigger picture. So in all these things, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. That's the truth we get to hold on to. More than conquerors is, again, it's a compound verb that literally means to hyper-conquer, to over-conquer. I put it in these terms, to super-conquer. It's that we have so much overwhelming victory in all of these trials that we have success to spare. It's not that we just barely make it. We're super conquerors. In this world, church, you will have trouble. Where do you turn to for help? Listen to Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. When you get into trouble, don't you get all kinds of offers from creation as to how to get out of it, as to how to cope with it, as to how to get by a little bit more? Church, friends, lift your eyes to the one who made all of creation. That's where our help comes from. That's how we can become super conquerors. How is it possible to do this? When Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, he goes on to answer it by this. He says, but take heart. What does he say next? I have overcome the world. It's by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ that we get in on his super. This is how we are super conquerors, how we have success to spare in the trials of life. As a kind of prayer, I want to invite you just to close your eyes and listen while I read sort of the conclusion that all of this has for Paul in Romans 8. Close your eyes and direct your attention to God. Holy Father, with Paul, we can say and live with utter confidence these words. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.